Last week we looked at don't waste your anger. And then this week we're looking at don't waste your stuff. And as I was preparing this week, I thought, Patrick, you are an idiot. Don't waste your anger is a very difficult topic. And then now this week we're looking at don't waste your stuff. Another topic that can easily lead us to feeling condemned. A topic that can make us feel like we really fall short. We live in Sydney, 2015. We live on the North Shore. There are 64 suburbs that make up the Upper North Shore. And we live in some of those suburbs. And those suburbs require a large amount of resources to reside in. How do we biblically think through our resources so that we are not wasting our stuff? Already, you can see we're dancing around the fire because this is a topic that can be seen as quite personal. It's nobody's business what I spend money on. It's nobody's business how much is in my bank account. But what I want to do this morning is I want to build upon the block that Dave started for us in worship this morning. And when we sang about this Savior who died for us and gave his life for us so that we could have life, what I would like to do is I would like us to gather around closely at a story that Jesus tells in a crowd that's massive to help them see there are some dangers. There are some And so would you silence that inner lawyer within us that can be very defensive, but ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to you And I want to tell you something. This has been my experience and this is what I find in God's Word that when the Holy Spirit corrects you or challenges you, it always comes with hope. Not condemnation. It always comes with hope. And so this morning, when we look at this topic of don't waste your stuff, would we find hope because of all that He has done for us? So... When I am talking about stuff this morning, what, does, what comes to your mind when you think about stuff? What comes to my mind, mind are things like money, possessions, and resources. Money, possessions, and resources. So our money can be our stocks. It could be our cash. It could be our bonds. It could be our investments if we have those sorts of things. It could be our savings accounts. It could be retirement schemes. That is what I'm talking about when we're talking about money. When I'm I'm talking about things in our our clothes and our furniture. And when it comes to resources, I'm thinking about things like our time and our health and our energy and our surplus, our extra. Now, some of those things overlap with one another. But when we're talking about stuff, that's kind of what I'm talking about that we're not going to waste. You know, Jesus never talks about stuff, S-T-U-F-F. He never talks about that word. But what he does talk about is he talks about money. 
and possessions. And behind the money and the possessions come another thing, which is greed and covetousness. Brothers and sisters, please hear me from the beginning. Money and possessions are not bad. They are not bad things to have. We need money. We need shelter. But what is dangerous is a heart to be covetous. What is dangerous is greed. And Jesus is warning about that. Now, how do you know if you are actually suffering from greed? Greed is really an unsatisfied longing. Greed is an unsatisfied longing. And look, being greedy can come in all sorts of forms. You can be greedy for food. You can be greedy for drink. You can be greedy for possessions. You can be greedy for wealth. But it's really this um, intently desirous heart and disposition. Now I want to say to you, I am not a money expert. But I want to share with you our stuff. The stuff that God has entrusted with us with. The stuff that we own. What we have, again, is often viewed as it's mine. I've worked hard for this. We have many experts who tell us how to use our money. We have people that we respect and we love who tell us and give us advice on how to use our money and our resources. And yet the God of heaven and earth speaks of money very much throughout his word. In fact, there are over 2,350 verses on money. 2,350 some verses about money and about possessions. Do you know that is more than about heaven and hell? That is more than about faith and prayer. God has something to say to his people about the way that they use their money. So this morning we're going to be turning to Luke chapter 12. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12 so we can hear Jesus address a man who's concerned about money and possessions. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, and this is the scene. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. He tells them a story saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, things 
uh, the, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we have the privilege of sitting under your word this morning, as we've had the privilege of singing praise and worshiping you, the maker of heaven and earth, God, I ask this morning that you would speak to us. Father, I am in desperate need of your help. For Lord, your word is good and true, and would your Holy Spirit deal with each one of us in whatever ways you seem fit. For we love you, and we know that you love us. And you want us to be good stewards. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a young boy, I grew up in a town called Modesto. Don't ever waste your money and go there, but it's a place called Modesto. And it's in the state of California. It's in the San Joaquin Valley. It's kind of, they call it the bedroom to San Francisco, which is, again, not a great picture. But they call it also um, the fruit basket to California because there's a lot of um, fruit and nuts that are grown in California. My mom and dad... um, we're very young when they got married, and we have, I have two sisters and me. And my mother was very determined to teach us to work. And so my mother would leave us at home uh, while she would go to work in the summers, and she would leave us a list of things to do. So mom, take some notes. This is a good idea. My mom would leave um, a list of things for us to do while she was away, and she'd be away for four to five hours. And the list of things that we had to do were things like cleaning out the refrigerator, that was pulling everything out of the refrigerator. We were 10, 9, 11, and scrubbing the racks, uh, cleaning it down and making it look very good. That was on Mondays. On Tuesdays, our job was to go through the kitchen cupboards and pull everything out below the sink and polish the silver and wipe down the, the, the counters, uh, the, the shelves. Another day, we would have to go around and clean all of the baseboards. What would happen was, by the time we got to Friday, we were dead tired. (laughs) But we all learned how to work. But what would happen is, if we didn't do the job well, Mom would pull me and my sisters aside and say to us, Kids, it's important that you work hard and you work well. Do you know why? Because you could be entertaining angels unaware. Now, my mother was very, very heavenly-minded. My mother would tell us stories while we would work. In fact, she would tell us a story, which is still very distinct in my mind, about the potato family. The potato family had an owner who was a farmer who became very unwell. The farmer got sick, and he had to sell the field. He sold the field to a guy who is going to come through and redevelop the land. The machinery is coming. This potato family was a mom and a dad and it had two sisters and a brother. The machinery is coming and that's going to pick up the potatoes and throw it into a truck and the family are going to be separated. One potato may go to a chip factory, one potato may go to a restaurant, and one potato may go to a a supermarket. The mom and dad, I think, stay together. But the idea was this is us as a family that we're going to be separated. And as 10-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 8-year-olds hearing this story, we're getting emotional. 
We're going to be separated. I'm going to be a potato chip. We, my mother tells us this story. We're crying. The man, the, own, the man who owns the farm dies. We're crying. But the idea is, is that whether we become potato chips or go to a restaurant and become mashed potatoes, there is a potato heaven. And we will wind up all together in potato heaven. Well, for some reason, as little kids, it made us understand that this world now is not it. There is something beyond. There is something greater than for what is right now and what is present. There is something greater than right now. Here in this story that Jesus is telling... I think Jesus is teaching this crowd who are pressing on about eternity, living in light of a day that is not yet here, that hasn't come. Friends, with eternity in mind, it's important that we understand that our stuff can be hazardous. If you're taking notes this morning, basically what I'm talking about is firstly that our stuff can be hazardous. Our stuff can be helpful. Hazardous or helpful, where is our treasure? How are we managing the stuff that God has entrusted us with? And it needs to be with eternity in mind that we're evaluating our stuff. Jesus is telling this Story. Now, what we need to do is we need to go back to chapter 9 in Luke. In chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to fulfill his father's mission, to die and pay the price that you and I will never have to pay. But he's set his face towards Jerusalem and he's heading there. And along the way, he's telling all sorts of stories and he's being questioned by Pharisees and Sadducees and people are asking him to clarify what he means and people are asking for healing. But Jesus here in this situation is stopped in the middle of his teaching and asked about an estate. I want you to pause that for a minute. And I want us to think about what is money? Money is some paper and some metal. Here in Australia, you've got funny looking money. In America, we've got even funnier looking money that it's just all green and you can turn in a $100 bill instead of a $10, bill, a $10 bill and get confused or ripped off. But here in Australia, at least you've got colored variations. But those papers represent a value. Those bits of metal represent a value. Now I want you to think about something. We go and we give a piece of paper and some metal to exchange for something that we value. What do you value? What do we as a society value? We exchange paper and metal for education. For clothes, for housing, for entertainment. We like to be entertained. Money is paper and metal that represents a value. 
We are entrusted with money and metal that is value and exchange it on the things that we find valuable. Here in this story that Jesus, um, or this illustration that we have here, this account, there is a man, there's a lad here who's going to Jesus and he's interrupting a crowd and he wants Jesus to intervene in his estate. I want you to think with me for a moment. How in the world, what is Jesus going to point out that is hazardous about our stuff? What is interesting here is that this lad calls Jesus a teacher. Now, did you know back in those times, if you needed an estate to be settled, you would go to a Pharisee or a Sadducee because they knew how to divide estates. So even though this man randomly calls out in the middle of Jesus' teaching, hey, Jesus, help me with this estate, he's doing the right thing. He's showing Jesus his respect. He's calling him teacher. That is the right course of action. The rabbis would often settle these, um, uh, these sorts of accounts. And in Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 16, there's some guidelines about how estates are to be divided. But, here, but notice in this, we have a few uh, things that are missing. We don't know whether the brother isn't giving him all of his estate. We don't know if the brother's just, you know, shaving, keeping a majority of the estate. We don't actually know what the boy is missing or what the, what the boy actually wants resolved. But Jesus isn't even going to engage or encounter in resolving this young man's um, judgment. He's not going to do that. But what I wanted to point out to you here is what seems to be the case in the story that Jesus uses is that the hazard comes in us knowing that we can be consumed by our stuff. Let me explain what I mean. We can be preoccupied with our stuff. And then there's three ways, I think, that we can be consumed in our stuff. And we can be consumed in our stuff in our thinking, in our desires, and in our actions. Here in this account, in our thinking, we have an, uh, an account that Jesus tells us about where this boy, this son, this man has just heard Jesus revealing that he is the Son of God. In, in verses 8 of chapter 12, Jesus is just explaining that I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Jesus has just revealed that he is the Son of God. Jesus is also revealed, hey, don't worry about your body. Worry about him who can judge your body. Jesus has warned earlier before that about the leaven of the Pharisees. And yet the young man doesn't seem to be taking in anything that Jesus has just said. But in the middle of this, he's pulling out and saying, Jesus, my brother hasn't given me what's owed to me. He's consumed in his thinking about what he's missing out on. I think we need to be hazardous with our stuff, that we're not consumed in our thinking about it. I think we can be consumed in our desires. Jesus helps us see in the parable that he tells that we want to eat and relax and to drink and to be merry. That is a desire that many of us have. Do we not want holidays? Do we not want bigger and better? 
Jesus, in this story that he's telling about this, uh, the parable, he uses the man and says that the man wants to have Mary. He wants to eat and relax. And it's affecting his desires. And in our actions, it affects our actions. The man in this parable that Jesus tells says his actions were that he was going to tear down and build bigger barns. It's not always wrong to want bigger barns. But it can be hazardous. Because who are the barns for? What are their purposes for? You see, in our actions, my brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that when our desire, when our stuff consumes in our thinking and our desires and our actions, for us alone, the consequences can be terrible. Because what we do is we sacrifice things like our family. We sacrifice things like our friendships. We sacrifice things like our commitment to our life groups and to our church. Our stuff can be hazardous because it is so consuming. You know, it's quite revealing to consider that the paper and the metal that we exchange, which which is of some value, also represents what you and I value. I read this incredible quote this week by A.W. Tozer, and I want to put it before you uh, for you to consider. It says this, The man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed, but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend upon that creed being true. He always provides himself with secondary ways to escape, so he will have a way out if the roof caves in. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the last day. We need to think about our stuff in light of eternity. It can consume us in our thinking. It can consume us in many, many ways in our actions But not only can stuff consume us, but it can trap us. Consider the lie that is brought when we are consumed by what we think we have to have. We buy into a trap that we will be happy and it will make our life better. Jesus says here in verse 15, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Does this boy want his inheritance because he's thinking about what he's going to miss out on if he doesn't have those resources so that he can do what he wants to do? He's feeling as though if I don't have the money, then my life isn't worth anything. We buy into the lie of money. And Jesus tells us to be on our guard. Before I started Bible college, um, I bought into the lie that this Apple iPod would make me a better man. Um, I had to have this. Um, I would sell my wife the reasons as to why we needed to spend money on having this little iPod. And I longed for this and the reasons that I thought this iPod would make my life so much better and my life would not be complete if I didn't have it is because, you know, I would be healthier if I had it. 
And if I didn't have it, I wouldn't be healthier. It would help me study better. It would make me a better husband and a better father because I'd be happy by a little Apple iPod. We finally decided that I should get the Apple iPod. And I got it, waited in the mail for it to be delivered. And when it came, I was a happy man. Very happy. I charged it, put all the music on there that I wanted. I went for a walk. I listened to it all the time. About a week later, my wife found it on the floor. And she said, oh, you know that thing that you you had to have and it's very important, your life, it's laying on the floor. Oh, I'll, I'll put that away. It's so important. A few weeks later, I lost it. Couldn't find it. But I told myself that I had to have this little thing. It's now a kid's toy. My girls put it in their handbag and act like it's their mobile phone. (laughs) We tell ourselves that our lives will not be that if we don't have this. We deceive ourselves and we buy into this lie that we won't have life if we don't have it. And Jesus says, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Things lie to us. They trap us. They entangle us. If you don't have it, you say to yourself, or media says to us, you won't be happy. We believe that by having things, things will make us happy. What happens when we do that? We are actually finding our life and our happiness and our purpose in the created rather than the creator. We become earthbound. We become enslaved and and chained up in the things that are passing away. And Jesus doesn't want that for us. Not in this world. It's passing away. But we buy into the lie that if we have that, we will be happy. My possessions will make me a happy man. My dad always used to say to me, son, you never own possessions. Possessions own you. We believe that when we have all these possessions, that we will be happy. But there are some very wealthy men who have a lot of possessions who bought into the lie and they look very miserable. Possessions can also make us feel important. The young man asked Jesus to arbitrate regarding his estate. But that is all about him. Teacher, tell my brother to, de- to divide the inheritance with me. Me. He's worried about himself. He wants to feel he wants to have what he wants. He wants he knows that if he gets this inheritance, he's going to be able to do what he's dreamed about, and it's going to make him feel important. In John 1, 1 John 1, uh, 1 John 2, verse 16, we read. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's incredible 
sobering verse that you might want to consider this week. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. I think Dave Harvey wrote this quote. It says, The two dominant characteristics of this world are pride. Pride born of man's failure to accept his creaturely estate and his dependence on the Creator and covetousness, which causes him to desire and possess all that is attractive to his physical senses. You see, we think that we are important by what we have rather than whose we are. We get trapped into that lie. Another thing that can happen is possessions and what's hazardous is we can have a sense of security. We fall into the trap when things are going well. We buy the lie that we've done all of this and it's in our hands. It's what we have produced. Who hasn't started a job and really, really wanted a job? You've done all the education. You've done all the training for a job and you've asked the Lord to help you and He provides you with that opportunity for that role and He grants you the abilities and and the strengths to serve in that role and you're beginning to be recognized. You're beginning to be entrusted with more at your workplace. You begin to be promoted and then perhaps given pay rises. And you're beginning to see it in yourself. Boy, I'm pretty good. And then the test comes. You do realize that you are making money and that you do have a good padding in your bank account. And you begin to feel secure. And your hope then comes in your bank account. Not the Creator who has enabled you to serve in that capacity. Did you know that 95% of believers who test, who are faced with the test of persecution, pass. 95% of believers who face the test of persecution pass that test. But 95% of believers, those who confess Jesus as Lord, when they're faced with the test of prosperity, they fail. I wanted the Lord to test me with prosperity, but after that, I don't. We have a false sense of security. We also believe that what we have makes us rich. And we can fall into that lie. And the trap that we fall into is that we think we are wealthy incorrectly. This week I worked out over the last five years what money God has given to me and entrusted me and my wife with. In comparison to some, it's probably not very much, but it's over half a million dollars that God has entrusted my wife and I to live with. Now, I can give all the reasons in the world as to why I can't give. And I can believe that I'm poor we can fall into the lie that I need more and that will make us rich. But I would like to escort you into a holy court no matter how much God has entrusted you with and you stand in a holy court before God. I think it's there. 
that this rich man will go, I am so poor. I am really, really poor. Imagine, friends, standing before Almighty God only to discover that poverty, the, what actual poverty you are in. The rich man in Jesus' parable measured wealth completely wrong. It was in possessions. It was in things. And it's quite bizarre to really think about that both the rich and the poor easily buy the lie that if I just had this, my life will be better not what Jesus is talking about here. You know, nowhere in this parable does Jesus talk about in, um, there being negativity on being prosperous or productive. That's not what Jesus is talking about. There's nowhere here that Jesus talks about having much is bad. The second point that I wanted to talk about that we can learn from the rich fool is that our stuff can be very, very helpful. We need productive farmers. We need productive farmers. Why? Because productive farmers who have been entrusted with much are able to carry out the work of the kingdom of God. You see, the question in this parable comes at verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. The question of this parable is, why did God say to them, you fool? God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? That is the question. Why would God call him a fool? It's not because he was productive. It's not because his vats were overflowing. And it's not because there was an abundance. He's a fool because he gave no indication of his God-given riches to God. We think that God isn't bothered sometimes, we can buy the lie, that God isn't bothered about how I use my money. And yet, he is. Go with me into Israel, standing outside the synagogue. Imagine Jesus leaning up against the wall. And he's able to watch people who were putting deposits into the depository box for tithes. And it's so significant to him that he actually calls his disciples to him. And he points out something. What does he point out? The widow with two mites. Some suggest he must have been close enough to be able to identify that she put in two copper coins. Just two copper coins. And he says and points out to the disciples, that is giving. Jesus watches the way that we give. In fact, we are personally able to give. This is a personal um, exchange between excuse me, us and God. So are we giving out of our surplus? Are we giving out of... He's our God. This woman, who is a widow, gives everything. Because why? If money, a paper, and metal represents a value, we spend that and exchange that for what we value, what is she communicating? I value Him. I value God. Back in Deuteronomy, just real quick, I want to read these verses to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
You know, the Lord has just delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's fed them. They've walked through the Red Sea. And he warns them about something because he's going to send them into the promised land. He already knows the challenges that we're going to face when it comes to stuff. And he says this, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of a flintly rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna with your fathers. Did you know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end? Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand, my own hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Friends, it is helpful for us to have stuff and we can be productive and we can be generous when we have stuff. Randy Elkhorn writes in his Treasure Principle book, God owns everything and I am his manager. God owns everything and I am his manager. I want you to think about that for a moment. So with the half a million plus dollars that the Lord entrusted my wife and I over the last five years, I am his manager of those things. In order to help us understand and see that this is really quite a biblical way of viewing things, Psalms 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's. Haggai 2.8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 says, Or do you not know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So a price. So glorify God in your body. We are managers. God owns this. We are his creation. We are his. And so what he entrusts us with is his. And we are to manage what he has given us. But I think what we need to understand as well is that God does entrust us with things. And that does not mean that we're not to be joyful and merry with the things that God has entrusted us with. Productive farmers do make merry. Please understand that bonuses and pay rises and increases, those aren't bad things. The farmer that Jesus is speaking of is not a fool because he's been a productive farmer and he's gaining profitable increase. Those productive and profitable farmers that God has rescued by his saving mercy reveal this. John Piper says, they reveal that the movement of their money is the movement of their heart. 
The movement of their money is the movement of their heart. When your money moves, how does it move? Do you find joy in giving? When I was a young man, there was a Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher um, uh, told me that if I would get a paper out, she would help me subsidize so that I could go to a private school. This woman and her husband lived on hundreds of acres. She, they lived in, in not a very nice house, but they were millionaires. Millionaires. Wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people. But they chose to live in such a way that it wasn't about them. It was about who they could help. And so after I worked for a couple of years to get money so that I could go to this private high school, she matched it my first year, and she paid for me my second year so that I could go to a private school. It is a blessing to give, and the joy and delight that they shared in giving is incredible. Giving gives us so many opportunities. God has entrusted us with things so that we can be a blessing. The movement of their money is the movement of their heart. It is helpful. It's our stuff. We can use it to be helpful. Or we can use it to be, it could be a hazard for us. Hazardous or helpful, where is your treasure? I want to ask you a few questions. Are you think trusting in money and not in God? Do you think that you are better than others because of your wealth? You know, that is so incredible when we live on the upper north shore of Sydney. And do we feel that we're better because we live on the upper north shore? Of, do we feel that we're better than others because we have? It's something that can be very hazardous. Are we consumed or are we trapped by our treasures? Are you working hard and giving generously? Are you biblically rehearsing what God says about money so that you know how to give the way God wants us to? Are you managing God's resources well? You know, Jesus instructs us to take care, to beware, and to be on our guard. That means that we should set guards around our hearts, kind of like the guards that are in front of Buckingham Palace that are supposed to protect the queen. Most of the time they do. But we should set guards around our hearts so that we can make sure that our movement of our money is moving our heart towards God. Now, how would you suggest that we post guards around our heart so that we don't waste stuff and don't feel greed and covetousness? Well, there's just a few things to finish up with. I think one of the best ways that we can put a guard around our heart so as to ensure uh, and, and weigh up on wasting our stuff is to answer answer honestly what is your true treasure what is your true treasure what would your family say is really what your treasure is what would your friends say this is this person's treasure in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich.
Answer honestly, is he your treasure? Look at what he's given for us. Secondly, I would ask you to confess and repent. If you are finding that your treasure is not where it ought to be, if you're not being a good steward of what Christ has given you, then then we look at 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Followed by Romans 8, 1, which says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, as we sang about in worship this morning, if we are recognizing that the way that we're handling our stuff, if we are wasting our stuff, God is growing us. He is sanctifying us. He loves us no more today than he will tomorrow or he did yesterday. We have been justified. But he is sanctifying us. I think another way that we can help in our uh, considering whether we're wasting our stuff, and if we recognize that, you know what, I am wasting my stuff, express specific gratitude. Express significant um, specific gratitude. It is so easy to not be thankful and not to observe what we have been given for the food that is before us, for the cars that we have, for the clothes that we have. Even telling our wife and our kids, recognizing the things that they've been doing, express specific gratitude. Another thing that you can do is dematerialize. This is something that um, is uh, sometimes hard for me. Um, I don't like to, I don't share well, um, and it's something that God's been growing me in. Um, There are times where there have been opportunities for us to give things away. But, you know, do I really need four TVs in my house? Do I really need 26 pairs of shoes? Do I really need 15 lamps? What would it look like to dematerialize? What would it look like to give generously? And as Davis said, we are, this is a very generous church. But what does it look like to give generously? Can you give not just your resources, but can, uh, your monies, but can you help somebody out? Can you give things away? And another thing that I think we can do as parents is we can seize opportunities to lead our families in giving. Lead our families, tell our kids about opportunities and needs and consider with them, how can we give to those things? And finally, there's a few good resources that you might like to read. One of them is Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. This is an incredible book. It's 13 bucks back at the bookshop. I think that's a good use of money. Worldliness has a great chapter. Dave Harvey has a great chapter on here about stuff. And Randy Alcorn has written another book. This is not easy reading, but this is called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. You might want to read that with a fine filter. You might not reach all the conclusions that he reaches, but Money, Possessions, and Eternity is another great way of helping us biblically be informed about the way that we use our stuff. You know, two men died. One was 17 years old, and he was buried with a ton of gold. In fact, that gold was actually discovered in 1922. He actually believed that he wouldn't, um, in the afterlife, that he would be able to have all of his possessions. But when it was dug up in 1922, it didn't go nowhere. There was another man who died at the age of 25. He was a, had access to great wealth. His mom and dad were very wealthy. And he had 
many, many opportunities to have things for himself, but he denied himself of that, and he went over to Egypt to witness to Muslims. But at the age of 25, he contracted spinal meningitis, I think it is, meningitis, and he died. Go back with me to that holy courtroom, and who's going to hear fool, and who's going to hear well done, thou good and faithful servant? Dave Harvey wisely highlights in his worldliness chapter that we don't actually know what happened to the guy who asked Jesus the question. We don't know where he went, what happens to him. But we wouldn't want to consider that, really. I want you to cast your eyes to the man who answered the question. Who answered the question. That man was obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. And with his face pointed to Jerusalem, gave his life as a ransom, and he joyfully obeyed his father. And he is the one who gives us riches that are immeasurable. He gives us riches that are unsearchable and imperishable, and they will be ours forever. Dear manager of God's possessions, how important is it for us to think eternally with what we have been given to steward. Can I ask you to reconsider where is your treasure? I think there's no better place than to look at Philippians 3. I'm going to pray for us, and the, music, and the band's going to come up, but would you pray with me now? In leading us in prayer, I just want to read these verses to you as you close your eyes and just consider what has been said this morning. And it says here in Philippians 3, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I have, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have for us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Heavenly Father, thank you for the treasure that we have because of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, as we consider not wasting our stuff, would our hearts be affected by what you've done and what we're a part of? Would we remember that this isn't home, this world's not our home, we're passing through? And Lord, would we remember that you're entrusting us and you're asking us to manage and steward that which you've given us. Lord, would we not be consumed in our thinking? Would we not be trapped by the lies of the world? But would we helpfully use what you've given us to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.